You know, it's, it's crazy that the American president met with the hostages' families before the Israeli president did. That's just insane. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, January 23rd. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to talk about the war in Gaza and the ongoing stalemate over those kidnapped Israeli hostages still being held by Hamas. Negotiations have gone nowhere, and Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't seem interested in pausing the war. As Julia explains, right now, hope is the only strategy for the families of the kidnapped, and that's not good news. And later, Julia Alexander swings by to chat about her experience with the new Apple Vision VR headset and how it might, maybe, transform Hollywood. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. Happy primary day if you live in the granite state of New Hampshire. Go vote. Why not? Uh, I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe not to talk. I mean, I, I can actually, Julia, think of uh, maybe a few reasons not to vote, given the uh, given the options <laughs> on the Republican side, at least. Well, and the fact that it doesn't really matter, as yeah, you wrote well, yeah, so yeah, wisely, yeah. that we're pretending to have a primary. Yes, the, the fake primary. And of course, uh, mm-hmm. there's not really a primary on the Democratic side, because... The DNC is punishing New Hampshire and the Biden folks are running maybe a write-in campaign just in case Dean Phillips makes a noise today, but I don't I don't think that's going to happen. But Julia, I want to talk to you about something much more consequential, which is the war in Gaza. There's a lot going on. A lot went down yesterday in Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu rejected an offer from Hamas, basically like a hostage exchange. Israel came back and proposed two-month fighting pause in Gaza to release all the hostages that are there. There's more than 130 Israelis still being held in Gaza. On the flip side of all this, more than 25,000 Gazans have been killed in this conflict so far. According That's according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas, we should say. And that total also includes uh, Hamas fighters. So uh, those those numbers are sort of difficult to parse out. But in terms of disproportionality, um, I think the math is, is <laughs> apparent on that one. Julia, what also happened yesterday is that family members of the Israeli hostages crashed the Israeli parliament during a hearing, the Knesset, and you know, were basically scolding lawmakers for not doing enough to get the hostages out. And so where does... Israel go from here? I mean, it doesn't seem like there's any progress on talks to release the hostages. And most Israelis, according to polls, I think continue to support the prosecution of the war while simultaneously 
not liking Benjamin Netanyahu. So it just feels like a very thorny problem politically. Yeah, well, I think President Joe Biden went to Israel right after October 7th and made the 9-11 analogy. I think it continues to be a really useful one because the mood in Israel seems to be one of uh, bent on revenge and, uh, you know, a kind of eye for an eye or an eye, um, two eyes for one eye, uh, given the numbers. But at the same time, it also is becoming clear that Bibi Netanyahu is continuing to fight this war in part to avoid responsibility for October 7th, in part to stay in power and not face corruption charges. You know, we know of other right-wing authoritarian types that want to come back to power to avoid court dates and trials. Yeah, and I think Israeli society is not uniform. I remember looking at Israeli opinion polls and being like, wait, this doesn't add up to 100%. (laughs) Like, how many opinions (laughs) can each person have, right? But, you know, you're also seeing voices that have been silenced by the Israeli government finally starting to get a voice. The mothers of Israeli soldiers who are fighting in Gaza, uh, some of them coming out against the war, some of them coming out for the war. Uh, you see some of the hostages' uh, families pouring, you know, fake blood down the street toward uh, Bibi's residence, private residence, over the weekend, um, because you heard this in the early days in the in the White House in the Biden administration that um, Bibi didn't seem to care that much about the hostages; that he was more focused on this war. Um, you've also heard, mem- you know, government officials in Israel come out and say that hey, you know, we stopped him from striking uh, Lebanon preemptively. So he seems so bent on prosecuting this war that he might be forgetting the hostages. I had one senior uh, Biden administration official tell me, you know, it's, it's crazy that the American president met with the hostages' families before the Israeli president did. That's just insane. Mm. And I think that doesn't escape attention in Israel. But again, it's an ideologically diverse society. Speaking of the Biden administration, what is their perspective on currently on how to bring about an end to this conflict or a pause or a ceasefire or whatever they view the next step as? Uh, I think they're hoping that it kind of dies down, that Israel goes to more kind of targeted warfare Uh, in the coming weeks. It seems that they have kind of shifted into that a bit in the new year. Uh, The question is whether that's enough to appease critics of Israel. And at the same time, you have Bibi playing this game where he is constantly forcefully contradicting President Biden and uh, the U.S. government, which is really its only real ally in the world at this point. I mean, there's there's Germany, there's a few other European countries, but really it's the US. And there's never been any, any love uh, inside the Biden administration for Bibi, but I think this is really frustrating people to a new extent that, you know, this is an ally that, I mean, you don't control allies, but this is really something else, right? And he ta- Israel takes billions of dollars in tax, U.S. taxpayer money in, in, in the form of military aid. Uh, a lot of it doesn't come with 
very many strings attached. And not only does he not listen to us, but he publicly thumbs his nose at us. So I think there is kind of a growing frustration and a hope that the war ends so that Bibi can leave. Because I don't think there's much that the Biden administration can do with Bibi in charge. Julie, we haven't talked yet on this podcast, at least, about what's going on in Yemen. Two Navy SEALs were killed over the weekend after a a mission off the coast of Somalia to stop and seize Iranian-made weapons that were bound for Houthis in Yemen. And and the Houthis are launching attacks against uh, U.S. and Western targets in the region. Um, I feel like this question gets asked every day in the news, but like, I want your take on it because you're so smart here. What, What are the fears of a wider conflict? Are they escalating? I think there's a sense that with every, um, because it's not just, you know, these two Navy SEALs, it's not just the Houthis, it's Iran striking targets inside Iraq, it's Iraq and Pakistan exchanging fire, it's, you know, what's happening on the northern border of Israel between Israel and and, uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, it's you know, strikes on U.S. military personnel in Syria. So it, I think there's a sense that, like, it hasn't happened yet. It's still like the, the. I remember reading a, an administration official saying, you know, the lid is still on the pot, but the boil is becoming increasingly mm. vigorous. I feel like at any moment it could tip into something bigger if, you know, these two Navy SEALs, it seems one fell overboard and a second one jumped in to get him and that's how they died. But if they had been, for example, hit with a Houthi missile, mm-hmm. what would that obligate the U.S. to do? Uh, if U.S. Uh, service members are killed, for example, in Iraq or in Syria by an Iranian missile, what would that obligate Biden to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and when tensions are this high and they're, and they're, so many missiles going back and forth, it's very worrying that, you know, one falls a little, you know, a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, and we're in a whole new world of pain. Great way to start the week, Julia, um, <laughs> pondering a world of pain, but, you know, hump days Look, it's tomorrow. the Middle East. I don't brighter. know, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. the Middle East. What do you, yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, we went from talking about Russia, which never brings you good news and to the Middle East. And it's like, well, what do you expect? Yep. First time name dropping Somalia on the powers that be. Everything uh, <laughs> is a circle. Julia, thank you so much for your insights as always. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Julia Alexander is here to talk about virtual reality. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug 
for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. All right. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Alexander. Nice to see you. Hey, Ben. Good to be back. How are you? I'm great. And I'm especially glad you're here today because I want to talk about the Apple Vision Pro, which um, you got to try it on, which is pretty cool. This is the new $3,500 mixed reality headset from Apple, which is launching a sort of a a niche-ish product. Uh, But it also clearly has some kind of longer term mass market aspirations to disrupt, you know, not just how we interface with apps or the internet, but also could possibly change how we consume entertainment. So I want to get all of your high-level thoughts on this. But um, just to start off, um, you got a demo from Apple. So tell me what it's like to actually wear this headset. What's the viewing experience like? It is hard to summarize. It almost feels like we're exploring a new wave of technology, despite the fact that Meta has sunk tens of billions of dollars into its VR and mixed reality ambitions, despite the fact that we have had Google Cardboard VR. And so the concept of VR is something that most of us have tried. But the concept that we understand VR to be is not even in the same sentence as what the Apple Vision Pro is. It's really easy to get sidetracked, I think, when thinking about the prospect of this hardware by the fact that it really does feel like something out of Star Trek. I will say, you know, the pros, I got to experience a bunch of different cool apps, including the Disney Plus app, which has been developed in part with Apple, um, using some really cool immersive technology. And so you're sitting there and it feels like nothing else. You know, I sat on a speed racer on Tatooine to watch A New Hope and it was super, super cool, fully surrounding and immersive. Um, but the, the the con, and this is where it's really going to be an issue for companies, not just like Apple, but what Meta has encountered, is it hurts. After 30 minutes, it was pinching <laughs> right. the back of my head. Yeah, no, that, that's a huge obstacle. And, and Matt mentioned this in his newsletter the other night, too. Um, and that's been a problem forever. When you have something heavy sitting in your head, it's just not comfortable. And I have to imagine there's some like end state version of this product where it's just like glasses that sit on your face, kind of like the meta Ray-Bans or the snap Ray-Bans. Um, and, and maybe eventually it's like literally a contact lens that sits on top of your eye. But right now that's a, that's a big obstacle. Like how, how long can you possibly sit with this thing on? Well, I love that Ben is bringing back the idea of Google Glass. Remember Google Glass from like 2012? Um, yeah, which 2014, was just, I think. Yeah, just like, I I, imagine, I can't wait for us to get back to there. And well, the, the, the issue with this really is when I was having my demo done and I was speaking to some Apple executives and the concept that I really heard from a lot of them was this idea of we're kind of interested in seeing where this goes with sports. So one of the parts that you see within this demo. And again, this is a 30-minute preset demo, right? So it's everything Apple wants to show you. Um, And as you're experiencing the world of the Apple Vision Pro, 
Apple, the people who you are with are watching what you are seeing on their iPad. So they are seeing what you are seeing. And it's this really weird um, experience. But what they showed us towards the end was this really cool scene where you're in the dugout at Fenway Park. So you're watching the Red Sox play and it's extremely cool. And you're seeing an, a side of sports that you're, you've literally never seen. Um, an example that they use, which is in line with Apple, who is spending quite a bit of money to have the right, exclusive rights to the MLS, is they have kind of a goal camera on top of the soccer net. And you can see Messi score a goal in the championship game. And there's an element when I'm in this that the Apple Vision Pro really can be the future of consumption of sports, I think, and consumption of film with the spatial technology that they need. So this is a spatial headset, which means it's just very immersive from a sound and vision standpoint. But you think about the fact that, to your point, Ben, after 30 minutes, I'm like, this is painful. I need to take this off and kind of like not touch anything for 20 minutes. You think about that concept, you know, an average baseball game is two and a half hours, an average football game is three hours, an average movie these days is two and a half hours. So if you can only get 30 minutes of a film, the joke I always make is that you basically get to the Millennium Falcon in A New Hope and then it's done. Is this idea of what is this really for? Who is this for? And the fact that you have to have this battery pack with you, right? And it's kind of a heavy battery pack and it sits beside you weirdly. So from a gaming perspective, that's not great. And when it comes to thinking about the glasses idea, which you're you're spot on with, you know, we've seen companies like Snapchat try, you know, you have guys like Tim Sweeney, who's the head of Epic Games, who back in like 2016, 2017, was saying, we're going to eventually, you know, in the next five, six, seven years, have these glasses at full capability, but we just don't. And, and a big part of it is if you think about the level of technology at a hardware perspective required to run 8K at kind of 120 frames per second, which is, if I remember correctly, this is like the threshold they've discovered for not getting nauseous. It's not, it's, so you're not getting VR motion sickness. Mm-hmm. In order to run that and then run the capabilities of what you're seeing and, and have the sound, you're, you have these massive, massive, massively powerful chips inside of this equipment. You have all of, you have these speakers, you have all these different components. So it's really difficult to make a lightweight VR headset. And until we really get to that point, this feels more like an ornament. That's what I keep calling it. It's like something that would look really nice on your desk after you buy it. But I can't really see any extensive use. And I think that's a really hard sell for a lot of entertainment partners. Julia, let's talk about some of the technological challenges from the content production side, too, because it's not just a hardware issue that Apple is working on solving. Obviously, it sounds like they have a pretty magical product, even if it's still probably a little bit too heavy. And this is just kind of V1 of where we're going to be 10 years from now. But if there's going to be a real shift in the production of content, I mean, there are going to have to be massive upfront costs involved in changing the type of filmmaking equipment that studios and streamers are using, that sports broadcasters are using. So take me inside the head of of some of the executives who are thinking through this stuff, because I have to imagine there's a lot of fear of missing out, of being behind the curve when it comes to this very cool new technology. But also imagining not just the cost of technology, but also the creative capital, the human capital that has to go into this kind of pivot from, you know, shooting in 2D to 3D to 360 degrees, immersive, whatever. You're exactly right, Ben. And something that I learned that I think is crucial to this is that Apple is giving out these cameras. So Apple has patented cameras. They're 180 degree 8K spatial immersive technology. So basically all the things that we saw in the Vision Pro that Apple is really proud of, they are giving those cameras to as many people as possible. So I couldn't figure out 
how many creators or which creators Apple is giving these headsets to. But you have to imagine that people like John Favreau, who is really in ahead with when it comes to technology, he likes using new technology and new cameras to really get some immersive experiences. And when you think about the fact that Disney has a really strong partnership with Apple, you know, is there a world in which The Mandalorian is filmed with a bunch of these cameras to create an immersive experience for Star Wars fans? Absolutely. You know, the argument that I make in my piece uh, is this idea that if you are a company thinking about your business lines and the potential revenue that you're really setting up, if you're a league and Apple is giving you some of these cameras, which I imagine that they are, being able to sell an extended, let's say, for example, NBA League Pass that is specifically for people who are using these immersive type of headsets, um, similar to kind of like different level tiers of Sunday ticket for the NFL. If you're Disney and you sell a specific Disney Plus subscription that has access to the immersive audio, the immersive audio and the immersive visuals that come with an Apple Vision Pro because you're using these cameras, the investment to your point really comes on the labor side. It's how many people are you going to invest in really developing some of these technologies and developing some really cool um, apps for these technologies? And more importantly, what is the cost of opportunity involved if you're doing that? If you're putting them there and you're not putting them here, are you missing out on something that's actually even more important? And I think there's some trauma, for lack of a better word, associated with some of these executives at companies who relate to streaming, right? And kind of were like, mm -hmm. we should have seen this coming and now we are making up for it here. And although streaming is a much easier point of access because it was cheaper and people were kind of had a ton of access to it via their iPads or whatever it might be. And this has a $3,500 hurdle. I think there is a level of, you know, today's audience is not tomorrow's audience. So if we miss out on developing today, are we going to be behind tomorrow? And this is the argument that Mark Zuckerberg often uses when he talks about the amount of money that they're spending on reality labs is that they want to be so far ahead of the competition that by the time there's actually a competitive market, Meta is so far ahead that they have this kind of dominance. I guess one question, Julia, is like, do consumers actually want this? Because, you know, you're talking about a 180 degree cameras. So I guess that's not it's not 360. You're not turning around and seeing, you know, the, the entire dugout behind you and being able to like you know, walk around Wrigley Field or, or whatever, but it's a real change to filmmaking. And I have to imagine that, that while it would be very cool, it's not something that the everyday consumer would want all the time. We're all accustomed to watching TV and movies in a specific types of aspect ratios on a flat screen with a border around it. And maybe you don't want to watch, you know, Big Bang Theory where you can turn your head and, and, and see, you know, outside the frame. So do you feel like this is going to be something that ends up being like a, a mass product, mass adoption for this technology, or is it always going to be a little bit more niche, a little bit more experimental for the, the handful of filmmakers and studios who want to work with this? The comparison I like to make is that the iPhone didn't really become anything important until 2008, despite being released in 2007. 2007, Steve Jobs kind of goes up or 2006 in the keynote and gives his iconic keynote, right, where he says it's a phone, it's, it's an internet browsing device, and it's a music player all in one, which is cool, but it's also kind of an ornament at the time, right? There were Blackberries, there were other phones that could do th similar things. There was Sony phones that were not smartphones, so you could put out, you could use as an MP3 player. 
What really changes in 2008 is that the App Store comes out. And in 2008, you have Uber. In 2009, um, you have other services. 2010, you have Netflix. So all of a sudden, your phone goes from being this device to being this aspect that you use throughout every part of your day to watch content, to connect with friends on Facebook and Twitter, to hail rides, to pay for stuff, to do online banking. So it becomes an actual useful computer. And therefore, the price is justified, even as that price comes down through partnerships with the various carriers like Verizon and T-Mobile. So I think what you see happening with something like the Apple Vision Pro is that this is one of the rare times where the technology companies really, as a distributor, need the entertainment companies. They need this to become something that is actually useful, actually taking the place of something. The difficulty with trying to create a new computer in 2024 is that the average home has about four to five computers already. You have a laptop, you have a tablet, you have a phone, you likely have a console, a gaming console that can do a ton of this stuff. And so there's no real reason to say, well, I'm going to go have this experience that might be slightly better, but the quantity of content that I really want access to, or the sociability of content in, in order in being able to connect with my friends, think about playing games, is actually very limited versus I can go and have a really great experience outside of it. So I think what needs to happen with Apple is that it, there needs to be a constant heartbeat of new content coming in. It needs to be uh, interoperable, which means that it connects with meta quests. So if you're playing a VR game, you don't just have to play with other people who are playing Apple Vision Pro games or whatever that might look like. And it also, as we were saying earlier, Ben, and I, I like what you're saying about the sunglasses, needs to be much lighter. It needs to be something that you can have on your head for let's say two hours, two and a half hours, the, the length of a movie or the length of a game you want to play, the length of a, game, of a game you're watching. It needs to be able to really do that without creating a hassle. And it needs to do it in a way that takes advantage of all this technology, which means you have to get all of your content suppliers, all of your developers on board with it. And we know that Apple is spending a lot of time giving as many cameras as they can, working with as many developers as they can to really make this happen. I think it also gives us a little bit more insight into why they're pursuing sports so hard alongside kind of advertising and Apple TV Plus ideas. There's also this, you know, we're trying to get this new computer off the ground. I think eventually we will be in a world where the mixed reality technology really gets to that point. I don't know if it's going to be in the next decade. I don't know if it's going to be in the next 50 years. But the idea that Apple has come out and done what Apple does best, which is wait, be late to the party, and then redefine, really gives us an idea of how this could be used by mass consumers. I just don't think it's going to happen for a minute. Yeah, Julia, I really like this comparison to the iPhone when it launched in, in 2007. I mean, to your point, when it first came out, it was kind of a gimmick. It, it was cool, but it, it took a little while before it became a platform and it took even longer before it was truly part of a technology and software ecosystem where you had total lock into the iPhone as sort of the center of your life. And I could see that happening eventually with this kind of augmented reality or mixed reality headset. But um, yeah, to your point, it's going to it's gonna take a while um, and it's definitely going to take the buy-in of a lot of people in, in entertainment and the studios and the streamers to make this thing work. But Julia, this is really fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on. Let's, uh, let's talk about it more when this thing's actually out in the market. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. 
please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.